Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City Council is going to explore what the next steps are for Hamilton's arena. One councillor looking to explore the idea of building it up at Limebridge Mall. A new lawsuit suggests that the Ontario law that forces gas stations to display stickers showing the cost of carbon pricing is illegal and should be tossed out. And also, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson lost a motion to force a snap election just before the Brexit deadline. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to start with uh, the well, the arena debate, uh, and it's uh, starting to heat up, and it's starting to look an awful lot like yeah, you know what, uh, from a few years ago. City Council has apparently decided to explore whether they should do something with the downtown arena. Uh, and perhaps look for a private-public partnership. It's a rather complex uh, proposal that they're talking about here. But, well, that's going on, of course. As you know, Michael Landlar, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, who was on the show last week, uh, is uh, also pitching the idea of a new arena, but he wants to build it up at Lime Ridge Mall with Cadillac Fairview, who he says are going to partner with him on this. And, of course, Michael himself is kicking in, uh, we're told, a substantial amount of money. Uh, has council turned their back on that proposal? Is it still something that may get on the table eventually? Right now, though, I want to bring Jason Farr into the discussion. He is the councillor for Ward 2 downtown, which, of course, is where First Ontario Centre sits for now. Uh, Jay, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. I am. Thank you, Bill. Sorry about that. Good. No, no problem. These things happen. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what happened yesterday and, and some of the city council decisions. Um, it's not unanimous right now, but uh, talk to us. Let, let's talk about the motion first, Jay, and then we'll kind of backtrack as to how you got there. Yeah, uh, well, from uh, the in-camera, which doesn't offer a lot publicly until we ratify it to council and hopefully offers a little bit more, uh, all but one we're supportive of what we dealt with for, um, I think the media is correct this morning, several hours in camera and several hours prior to going into camera. So uh, there's a large majority of uh, my colleagues, all but one, Councillor Whitehead, opposing uh, the in-camera um, item out of camera yesterday. But uh, essentially, uh, you're, you're hitting uh, hitting it in a nutshell. The only thing I might argue with you, uh, Bill, about, and uh, you know maybe others who are, are swayed with sort of looking at this um, as just an arena debate, uh, I'm going to suggest that starting now with you and, and moving forward uh, in any public comments anybody wishes me to make that this is not just an arena debate this is definitely a precinct debate so we're not just talking about an arena a 10,000 seater in this case we're talking about um, reinventing ourselves uh, looking differently at our entertainment precinct and that's what it's always been about unanimously in a I think it was a 15 to 0 vote in um uh, late January of this year, council actually agreed um, unanimously that this is a precinct uh, uh, debate, and it's one that needs to be exclusively looked at for the downtown. So this was just a let's call it the first phase of a three-phase uh, precinct issue, and this focus is on the arena in this first phase. So I, I understand and appreciate that's what pub- probably what we're going to talk about for the most part, but it really is part of a bigger picture. Well, I, I understand that, but I, 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 rem- I remember the votes. Jay, you've been on the show. We've talked about yeah. the, those previous right. meetings and those previous votes. Uh, but to my knowledge, and now I wasn't behind closed doors, obviously, to my knowledge, there was very little of any discussion at all about the convention center in Hamilton Place yesterday. It was about the arena. That's why we're focusing on this right now. Yeah, I, and, and fair enough. Absolutely. But I just want to always bring clarity, at least whenever I'm talking about it, that this is part of a uh, a, a council-approved unanimous motion about a precinct. 
about our entertainment facilities as a whole. And, and absolutely, I, I, I completely understand and appreciate that primarily we want to talk about what was, and you're right, for the most part, 95% of the conversation was on the uh, first phase, the arena piece. So, so no, I appreciate that, but I, it really is important that, that, for me anyway, that we always remember that this is a bigger picture um, mandate of council. Yeah, and, and as you get further, as you get more re- information and more details and data about the other two facilities, we'll have those discussions <laughs> too. But uh, but we don't have it yet, and so no. but we do have some data. At least you do, anyway. Yes. Uh, about the arena and some of the report. And now we didn't get all the stuff from Ernst Young. I understand part of that was confidential, and that's I mm-hmm. assume what you discussed behind closed doors. But uh, but let's talk about well the old real estate thing: location, location, location. I understand this whole thing about precinct. Uh, we get mm-hmm. that, but does that mean that uh, the council is is committed right now that all three of those facilities must remain in the downtown core? Yeah, well, unanimously at the end of January of 2019, we were committed to that, and so this was a follow up of that. In that motion, it was moved by myself, seconded by Collins, uh, with a lot of strong uh, support, obviously for maintaining an interest in the downtown. We also uh, moved a budget to get this uh, EY consultant. Um, uh, to report back to us as soon as possible, and that's what yesterday was. So, in that report, mm-hmm. uh, there's, as I mentioned just before you joined us, it, essentially a mathematical exercise. Yes, here's how much you guys are dumping into the old facility now, uh, and it's only going to get more expensive as time goes on. Uh, and and did did he actually present it in your mind a legitimate business case to say, you know what, uh, probably more suited to us and probably more practical for us to invest in something new. Uh, as opposed to dumping something into a facility that, let's face it, a lot of other reports in the past have dictated is too big and, and at this point, just too decrepit for, for the long-term usage that you may want to use out of an arena. Uh, very clearly, yes, uh, to answer your question. Uh, pound for pound, it's a much better way forward uh, with caveats, Bill. And one is um, you need an anchor tenant, which is uh, you know why you and I are probably going to talk about one of our greatest philanthropists and smartest business guys and very much appreciated Michael Andlauer in a few minutes. But yep. the other piece is um, uh, the, uh, the size of the facility, uh, use of a facility, 10,000 versus, you know, 17,000 seats is, is another. And uh, a, a private-public uh, partnership was, uh, you know, key points made uh, publicly yesterday, too. So you get all those elements working together and a smaller 10,000-seat arena in the downtown makes a whole lot more sense. And I don't have the numbers uh, in front of me, but from a monetary standpoint and from, you know, alleviating burdens on the taxpayer, which we've been doing with our entertainment facilities for about eight years now since we privatized operations, this is a pound for pound a much better deal. Absolutely. All right. And, and it's it's not consummated by any stretch of the imagination. There's, there's As I know the mayor said in the meeting yesterday when you got back into open session, you got a lot of work to yet, yet to do before we get to that point. Uh, Absolutely, and and we are going to talk about Michael Andlar and some of his comments in just a couple of minutes as well. Uh, one of the statistics that jumped out at me, and, and and again, I know that some of your colleagues aren't even sure this necessarily that we you know, the city that is should be investing in anything at this point. Uh, but no, that's their free choice to make, I guess, when they get into situations like this. But we've got a seventeen thousand seat arena, and and as was stated in the report, that was built. Let's face it, because we thought we were going to attract an NHL franchise, and mm-hmm. I'd like to think that most people have that off the table now, and that's not going to happen. But well, what was it? The number, and I don't have the numbers in front of me here because I got all these reports in my office. I, th- I think it was only like thirty-three percent of the time that, th- that there were facility that facilities were being used that you actually had to use that top rung of the arena, which tells us be. that it's it's just it's, it's superfluous really to the needs of the city. 
it, it may be well less. Well, I think it's 16. It may be less than that, Bill. So absolutely. We know the Bulldogs have great fans uh, somewhere in the middle of the road, to my understanding. So our anchor tenant, who half the time when we're you know, open at FOC, First Ontario Centre, it's a Bulldogs game. Um, and we know that the upper bowl is very rarely used unless you're in a Calder Cup situation. Uh, it's, it's now curtained up. I, I took part and really enjoyed the first inaugural season of the, uh, Hamilton Honey Badgers. We not only, uh, you know, curtain off the top bowl, but we also curtain off the end zones or the, you know, basket areas. Uh, and, and it gives that feel, uh, of a more, um, you know, condensed and, uh, the, the atmosphere changes for the better, obviously, when you do that. But it's still way too big of a facility, even for our professional basketball team at this point, where the average attendance is roughly 4,000 in the CEDL, the Canadian Early Basketball League. So, so I think it's less than that. And yeah, it, and, and, you know, one of the things the consultant said of many is, you know, when you create this atmosphere and build this new facility, things are going to happen like they did in London, where, you know, um, interest in the anchor tenant, uh, was up 50%. So ticket sales went up 50% when they did a, a right-sized arena project. Uh, and then concerts, I think, were 15 to 20% up in revenue. So we, we had that embedded in the EY consultant report to us. That was made public yesterday. And that certainly is a uh, a deciding factor amongst many, as you said in the opening before, some, but something happened to the phone here. Uh, you know, this is complicated. There are a lot of variables involved in this. But to the point where maybe there's uh, one or two counselors uh, who may be thinking about do nothing, you know, we're talking about if we're focusing on the arena in terms of the greater picture here, which is the downtown entertainment precinct, um, you know, it's a 37, 38-year-old facility. It's it's aged. So not only is it not right-sized, but it's also getting old, and those operational costs are getting greater and greater every year, uh, uh, capital costs, rather, and some operational costs. Now, they're not $11 million uh, uh, on an annual basis that was the last HECFI budget when it was being operated by a, a, a board of uh, volunteers and some councillors about seven years ago. Uh, that $11 million hit was the last hit that we had as heck by that uh, pushed us towards, obviously, as you know, uh, looking for outside operators who have been very successful year over year. And they've reduced that sub- subsidy uh, to well less, I think, well uh, south of a, a million bucks. So we, we've been doing those things and all the while talking about, hey, if it's working from an operational standpoint, we need to continue to focus on that and maybe... Uh, we can get the refresh we need and update our facilities from an entertainment perspective in the downtown. We get that, uh, I, and, and that was the stated goal, I understand. Yeah. Now, in, in his presentation yesterday, uh, Mr. Panley from Erston Young st- stressed at least a couple of times that I saw in some of the clips I've seen on this one, that, look, at this is hinging upon private sector investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, along comes private sector, who also, by the way, happens to be the owner of your main tenant that says, yeah, I'm, I'd like to partner with you guys on this, but uh, I'm talking to another private sector tenant, and we're talking about doing something about on the mountain. Given the reputation of Mr. Andlauer, and given the fact that this guy has contributed a lot of his own money into this enterprise and that building for over the last number of years, given the fact that he is the sort of person that you want to retain here and he's ready to write some checks here, do you not at least owe it to listen to what he's got to say? Oh, I think we spent a great deal of time um, addressing what he had to say. Most of that, Bill, uh, you know, that that communication from Mr. Anlauer from the Bulldogs uh, was uh, private and confidential. We were dealing with potential partnership. We were dealing with real estate. Uh, and so there's very little I can share in terms of what was said 
in that debate. I would suggest that a large majority of my uh, colleagues understand and appreciate where Mr. Andlauer is coming from. Uh, there is absolutely no disrespect, and, and we're not surprised, and we don't uh, at all, I, I feel the majority of us, uh, at all feel uh, we've been put in any kind of box by this uh, late uh, hour um, uh, communication that ended up, again, being an in-camera conversation because it entailed many things that you can't speak to at this point anyway publicly, but we certainly did. I mean, it was it was part of the focus. We tried to obviously stay focused on on, on that, that report um, and, and make the decision we made ultimately um, based on, you know, what was asked for, what council unanimously ratified in January to have that consultant come back and deliver, which was not really uh, at all uh, in part or, or in, in whole or in any way uh, involving a, a last minute uh, alternate location. Well, I, yeah, of, wait, of, wait a of, second. Uh, wait a second. Just sure. I, I'm going to take exception with your characterization of this as a last minute because you don't have a time frame for this. Uh, he has come along and said, look, at, here, I'm, my lease is almost up. I'm looking for alternatives. I found a private sector partner. Now, I know you can't discuss what you discuss behind closed doors, but I right. can tell you what we do know in public. Michael Landlar is dealing with Cadillac Fairview. They want to build an arena on the old Sears site at Limeridge Mall. Now, you can get into all the numbers I'm sure you discussed behind closed doors, but that's the principal idea here. That's the principal concept, and it could be a viable alternative right now. Uh, I, I still remember, of course, the stadium debate, and I'm sorry to bring that up, but, I mean, that's going to be the comparator here. Uh, you found zero private sector investors to build that stadium. You got the government money, and that was it. Uh, you can't really turn your back on people that are saying, I'm willing to help, and say, nope, sorry, it's going to be our way or the highway, because it just might be the highway. Yeah, and, and fair enough. I, I, when I was saying last minute, the, the communication only came to the city that we, that we had on our docket yesterday in camera, three days before our meeting. So that's all I meant by that. Absolutely. Uh, Michael's been talking about needing a new arena for a long, long time. Our anchor tenant has been very, very clear, and I think a large number of us elected officials who ultimately will decide on this appreciate that and have listened. So I didn't mean anything other than the item itself was added to the agenda that was asked for you know, back in January. So I didn't mean anything uh, untoward by the fact that it came late. But it, it, I think, appropriate. It came to the appropriate place. It just wasn't anything on our docket until three days ago. That's all I meant by that. Okay. So, yeah, and, and, but the other thing, too, Bill, we got, you, got, you got 30 Mike, seconds here. Michael, Michael Andlauer is a very savvy business person. He's a very well-respected business person. He's a giant in sports with the Habs and the Bulldogs. He also is, I'm sure, going to contemplate working with us, and already is contemplating working with us, at a location downtown. This is options, and this is what business people present, and this is something that everyone wants to talk about right now. But the reality is, I mean, there's a great number of us who want to continue to work collaboratively with it. Extending license agreements or contracts for our anchor tenant, that, that's a no-brainer, I think, for most of us. So not just that in an interim basis, but location-wise, too. He's going to keep his options open. And, and I think a lot of us feel confident about that. And we certainly well, well, we'll that, that remains to be seen. We're going to check that out. Jay, listen, I know you got to run. I've got to run, too. Uh, we'll continue this conversation, I'm sure, over the days ahead. Appreciate it today, Anytime. though. That's uh, War 2 Counselor Jason Farr. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we uh, predicted, a new lawsuit suggesting that the Ontario government's law that forces gas stations to display stickers on the gas pumps about carbon pricing is illegal and should be tossed out. Here, here. I'm on side with that. 
Uh, let's uh, let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of this. Uh, Karis Weibel is uh, the Director of Fundamental Freedoms Program with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Kara, good morning. Thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. This is a, a great endeavor, a great idea. I'm sure you've probably got an awful lot of popular support for this. Talk to us about the the, the, the putting a whole, this whole thing together. I mean, a lot a lot of people were in the industry and others were outraged by this when it was announced. I mean, I mean the policy, not not your reaction to it. Yes, yeah. So no, I mean, I think you know the the idea that um, that the government can you know force a private business to convey a particular political message was something that um, concerned a lot of people, and that, that was our, our concern. So we, um, you know, we, we did urge the government before they passed this law um, not to do it, and um, once again, when they were looking at sort of the regulation of what the, what the notice would look like, we, we, we tried again to urge them not to, to take this step, um, but um, they, of course, have gone ahead and, and done it, and um, and so, as as we had said, we would do. We've um, we've brought a challenge to that to that case to court. I mean, this this policy is wrong on so many different levels. Uh, obviously, from the Civil Liberties Association, you're talking about, uh, and, and I think very you know very rightly about the free speech aspect of this. Uh, I, I've got a problem with any government uh, forcing private sector people to actually do their political bidding for them, and that's essentially what's going on here. I mean that's how, that's that's certainly our perspective. We you know th- there are lots of instances where the government um, does obviously force private businesses to engage in certain types of expression. You know health health and safety warnings and nutrition labeling and things like that. Um, but this is something quite different where um, this message is is very clearly a political one. Um, it's 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 a partisan one. Um, it's not a coincidence that it's been it's been done at this particular you know point in time just prior to an election um so so we we have concerns about that and it it really um you know doesn't have to do with sort of uh, the carbon tax or climate change it has to do with the government compelling people to uh, convey a political message for them. Yeah, and as we've talked about this on our program over the last couple of months, I guess now, Kara, I, I, I'm not, when I, I talk against this policy from the Ford government, I'm not suggesting that carbon pricing is the best and the be-all and end-all, uh, but the fact is, is the government's policy. Uh, and, and this is a government that's clearly in opposition to what the Trudeau government is doing, and they're using these stickers as, as a political tool. It's, it's not to inform us, because basically even the message that they put on here is they're speaking in half truths. They don't tell the whole story. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that you know, the the I mean, the bill is called the the Federal Carbon Tax Transparency Act, and um, and the idea is that it's a a price transparency measure. But uh, I mean, we know or uh, we've we've learned through media reports that um, an industry association approached the the Ford government about um, when they learned that they were going to be doing stickers to to sort of suggest the sticker, which showed the full kind of um, range of components that go into the price of gas, and that that was rejected uh, for for something that is um, clearly very partisan and focuses on just this one particular aspect. Well, sure. I mean, the stickers don't tell you how much provincial tax is coming off every time I fill up at the gas station. That's that's part of that. They also, and, and again, you know, since we know what the policy is, the federal policy that's now in place here in Ontario and in most most of the rest of the country, for that matter, uh, there's a rebate section to the to this particular policy from the federal government, and they don't talk about that either. So when they say 
that uh, that you know this is what it's going to cost you. That's not true. I mean, because you're getting money back. I already got money back even before we the program went into place when we filed our taxes this year, and and that's going to be progressively increasing too. So, and again, if they spoke this whole thing and said, okay, here are all the facts, we still think it's a bad policy. I I can have that debate. But if they're going to go in half-truths like this and, and, and false information uh, about a number of things, they had the other aspect, too, of course, that they call it the job-killing tax. There is absolutely no proof that, that that's the case at all. In fact, since the carbon tax has been put in place here in the province of Ontario, there have been a number of jobs that have been created as a result of that, not lost. Uh, I, I just, I'm just ticked off about this, and I'm glad you people at least have come forward and say, look, at, yeah, we're going to do something about this. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's there's certainly people who who come at this with lots of strong opinions because because of the concern about you know what what the government's message is and whether they agree or disagree with it. Our focus is really just on this this principle of of um, the government not being allowed to force private entities to convey a political message for them, and and that's exactly what this what this law does. It does so under threat of uh, very significant fines, and um, and you know we we certainly are hopeful that a court will agree with us that this isn't isn't a, a reasonable restriction on freedom of expression. And I know that's going to be the basis. I mean, I've just pointed out some of the inaccuracies in this whole thing. That's uh, when you when you're arguing this sort of thing. I mean, you have to stick to points of law and and to obviously to civil liberties and and constitutional rights and charter rights and all of this stuff. And and I, I think you're going down the right road with the way that you're describing this right now. Because uh, the other question that you raise in a circumstance like this is, if if this is allowed, where do you draw the line then? Are they going to put up stickers in in storefronts next year saying "Don't vote for this guy" or "Don't do"? Um, you know, if they're giving give them that leeway to say you can put any government message you want and force the private sector to stick that up in their in their place of business, uh, that's that's going down a pretty dangerous road. Yeah, and I mean, we we also I think are aware that in in an election period there are restrictions on what. Um, you know, third parties can say if if a corporation, if a gas station decided on its own that it wanted to um, to display and and pay for sort of advertising around um, either an anti-carbon tax message or whatever it might be, um, in certain instances they would need to register with Elections Canada. There would be um, there are sort of transparency measures that are in place there and accountability measures that are in place there. Um, the Ontario government is is. Uh, at least according to the chief electoral officer, not subject to that regime, and um, and and so they are are forcing these private businesses to do um, some of their bidding for them. Uh, at substantial penalty if they decide to not to follow the through with this policy right now. I mean, they, you know, they talked about ten thousand dollars a day in fines. Mm-hmm. I think they've kind of walked back on that a little bit, but they still said it's going to be thousands of dollars. Uh, it, it's it worthy of note here too, as we've mentioned on this program, and I'm certainly you, you're aware of this as well, Kara. One of the strongest opponents for this is the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you know, this is because I know some people can say, "Oh, you, these are people who just don't like the Ford government." No, these these are people that have the rights of these small businesses in mind when they they voice their opposition to this. The Chamber of Commerce, that represents small business especially, is saying you can't do this to small business. You can't force them. To, to convey a political message on your behalf and then fine them if they refuse to do so. That's that's yep, yep. that's 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 curtailing free speech. Yeah, the the Chamber of Commerce has, you know, spoken out publicly about about this and wrote to the Ford government urging them not to to go down this path. Um and uh you know, for yeah, for, for the for the reasons that that you mentioned. 
So what's the process? How, where, do you, where do you go now? Have you, you filed the suit already? We filed the, yes, we filed the claim, and, um, and uh, I believe our lawyers are going to be speaking with uh, the government's lawyers um, possibly today to, to sort of sort out a schedule and determine uh, when we can get this, this heard, when we can expect a response from the government, and when we can get the matter before the court. Now, is this going to be a tribunal, or is this actually going to be a courtroom, a, 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 a hearing? It, it will be before the Superior Court of Justice. Okay, so okay, so yeah. you're you're we're into the legal system here because I know we are some some yeah. of these some of these things are actually handled through tribunals, human rights tribunals, yeah. things of this nature. But this is going to be right in the courtroom setting, so yeah. obviously points of law are going to be instrumental in this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the, the claim is based on a, a violation of the charter. Our view is that this this law violates the charter, and you know, I meant I know you mentioned the the government sort of walking back on the fines, um, but. But the law actually specifies what the maximum fines are, and yeah. the law is what we're taking issue with, not you know a statement that may have come out of this or that political office. What kind of feedback are you getting on all this, Kara? Um, I, I assume the government's not happy about it, but well, I I, I haven't heard from them, so um, um, yeah, I'm not sure I can I can sort of speak to the feedback. I mean, there are there we've 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 heard um, we've certainly heard instances of uh, support. I think if you if you look at social media, like like with any issue on social media, there are people who think this is a good idea and people who think it's not. Um, so, um, but, you know, our, our, our basis for bringing this case is not about what would be popular. It, it was about what, um, what we feel is an important legal issue, and um, well, that, that's part of the problem, though, isn't it? I mean, in, in the the court of public opinion, uh, which probably is not going to play much of an impact when you finally get in front of the, the the courts and the judges in this situation, but the court of public opinion conflates the two issues as to whether or not the carbon tax is is a good tax uh, or, or not, or whether it should be cap and trade, or you know, all this sort of stuff. And and I understand that we're going to have that debate, and that's probably not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but that's that's ir- almost irrelevant to what you guys are doing. As a matter of fact, if, from a legal standpoint, it is irrelevant to what you guys it is are doing. Yeah, this we, this is more about this is this is this is based on Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and and what we consider you and I, and I'm sure an awful lot of other people, to be an abuse of that. Yeah, I mean, our our case is is not at all about you know the, the carbon tax and whether uh, the federal government is right or the provincial government is right. It's it's about this principle of uh, of a government. Using the law to force private private entities to convey a political message. And just to remind our listeners that that, that is a battle that's going on, but it's another battle in another series of courtrooms. And uh, as we know, round one already uh, was was lost by the provincial government. They appealed and, and suggested that the federal government didn't have the jurisdiction to to actually implement a program like this. And the court ruled that yes, they do. Uh, Saskatchewan had a similar ruling too, but uh, I guess this is going to go to the Supreme Court. So I know you're watching that with great interest, as I am too. But I'm more concerned at this stage uh, about what you guys are doing right now too, because I'm feeling for because I've heard from uh, some of the operators of these facilities, and and they're they're really feeling put out by this. Uh, whether they agree with the policy or disagree with the policy from the government is almost inconsequential. They don't be, like being told what to do in a situation like this. And the the ones I've talked to anyway, Kara are afraid to speak out because they're afraid of what might happen to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you, you know, it's it's obviously a big undertaking to, to take on the government and for a, a business to do that. Um, you know, I, I think they, 
it's it's significant, and so we we we've heard as well from industry associations and uh, and gas retailers that you know whether whether they like this or not, they're they're just not willing to 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 fight it. And um, if you if you look at at some of the government statements, I think that they were probably counting on on that. You know, I I know there was a statement. I think it was by the um, energy minister who who said you know we we don't expect that gas stations will will fight back on this well i'm <laughs> are they afraid they're gonna, they get, they may get fined i mean there's any number of things that could happen to them in a situation like this and um it's it's tough being a small business person in this community in this province these days um and you know to, when the government lords over them like this it's got to be somewhat problematic so uh, all i know is you may not be hearing from them but i think you've got a lot of silent supporters here uh that would like to see something uh, in the way of a resolution to this uh and it's got to happen sooner than later anyway so uh, any idea as to when that's actually going to get before the judge um i don't at this point i hope i hope to have a better sense of that in, in the next couple of days but right now um i can't speculate on when that might happen well, Kara, we'll stay in touch. We're watching with great interest to see just how this rolls out in court. Uh, thank you so much for the time, and uh, good luck with, the, with the, 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 this whole physical process and this whole legal process. It, it, I, I think it's, it's something a lot of folks are watching here to see just exactly how the courts and how they're going to rule on this, and certainly uh, other groups too, like the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce and others are watching with great interest. So uh, we got your back. We'll see how this goes. Thank you. Take care, Kara. Take care. Kara Zweibel, Director of Fundamental Programs for the uh, Civil Liberties Association. And, and, and again, I understand that, you know, when we've talked about this before and I've expressed some of my concerns about the policy uh, from the Ford government, uh, people simply say, well, that's because you don't like the Ford government. No, it's because this, as the Civil Liberties Association so rightly pointed out, violates free speech. Whatever your political affiliation is, if you're a gas station operator or owner, if somebody comes along, a government official comes along and says, we demand that you put this on your sticker, which is, it's, and it's a political statement. It's not a fact. It's, I know some years ago, that, well, the gas stations themselves, you know, there's that other sticker that's already on the pump that tells you how much uh, a, a tax goes on, you know, every time, every liter of gasoline. This is the federal tax. This is the GST. This is the, you know, all that sort of stuff. I, okay, that's fine. That's information. Not a partisan issue at all. It's just telling you. But this is a partisan pro- program that they pro- they put in place. It's, it's an anti-federal government policy program that's been put in place. And if if they wanted to make it optional, knock yourself out. But but to demand that people do this and comply or be fined heavily, well, you know my thoughts on this, and hopefully the courts are going to agree. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, not been a good week for uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, he lost a very important vote about his uh, no-deal Brexit uh, when actually a number of his own Conservative caucus members uh, voted against him and voted with the opposition to defeat the motion. He also lost a motion yesterday that uh, would have given him the power to call a snap election. And uh, today we find out that uh, his brother, who was also a backbench member of the Conservative Party, quit, uh, citing differences with the Prime Minister, a.k.a. his brother, Boris Johnson. Uh, what else can go wrong? Anyway, uh, to talk about this whole mess and, and how this hopefully is going to get cleaned up, we hope anyway, is uh, Brian Lewis, Professor of History at McGill University. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. 
Uh, good morning, Bill. Things seem to be spinning out of control uh, for the Prime Minister right now. Uh, just about all the tools that he thought he had at his disposal, Brian, to, to deal with, first of all, the, the insolence backbenchers and, and possibly the opposition, uh, seem to have been taken out of his, 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 his scabbard right now. What, what options does he have here right now? He seems to be pretty much backed into a corner. Yes, I think he is. Um, and uh, the, the notion that this was all part of a grand plan that is uh, just uh, unfolding uh, in a grand style, I, I think has been exploded in the last couple of days. What options does he have? Um, first of all, he's going to try and bring back uh, the call for an election on Monday. This is the, the last time uh, that um, Parliament uh, could vote uh, for the election before the prorogation. So it's the last time that he could get that um, before October the 31st when uh, Britain is supposed to crash out of uh, the European Union. So he could uh, try to call that uh, election uh, again on Monday. Um, the Labour Party might vote for it this time around, even though they voted for, against it yesterday, because uh, the bill blocking a no-deal Brexit would have passed by then. But a lot of Labour MPs uh, don't trust him at all, and they think that if they give the Prime Minister the go-ahead uh, for a general election, that uh, he would be able to postpone the dates, or he might win the election and then cancel uh, the legislation backing um, um, or preventing uh, the no-deal Brexit uh, on October the 31st. So that is a possibility on Monday, but it's by no means certain. The second option is that he could pass a one-line bill which amends the fixed-term Parliament Act of uh, 2011, um, which does not need uh, a two-thirds majority, uh, it simply needs uh, a majority of one vote. And that one-line bill would say, notwithstanding the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, there's going to be a, a general election on October the 15th. It's possible that he might win that because the Scottish National Party might vote for that uh, election. But the government is a bit reluctant because um, that uh, one-line bill might be uh, amended by the opposition, um, calling for a later election date after October the 31st. Thirdly, he could call a confidence vote in his own government on Monday. In other words, he could get uh, his MPs to vote against his own government um, and challenge the Labour Party to vote uh, confidence in a Tory government, which they probably wouldn't do. <laughs> so if he got that confidence vote uh, against him passed, that would lead to a 14-day period uh, in which um, um, the opposition um, is allowed uh, to try and form uh, a government of its own. If that failed, uh, then um, there would be an election 25 working days afterwards uh, on October the 29th. That would be the early state for that election. So two days before the uh, October the 31st deadline. And the fourth thing he could do uh, is simply to resign, not the government, just resign himself, go to the Queen and ask her to ask Jeremy Corbyn to form a 
short-term government to request the extension from the European Union because he has categorically said that he's not going to do it. Um, and then that would put the onus on the Labour Party uh, having got that extension. Then there would be a general election and um, Johnson would claim that the Labour Party is uh, anti-Brexit. Uh, a number of options then. I, I, I tell you, if they yeah. if they go down that third one, though, and there's an ele- the election two days before the, the Brexit deadline, that's cutting it pretty close, isn't it? It's really cutting it close. Uh, if uh, the, the Tory party won that election, got a majority, which is by no means certain, then they would be able to uh, cancel um, the no-deal Brexit uh, blocking uh, vote um, uh, and go ahead with no deal. But, uh, you know, this is... A- Cutting it, as you say, extremely fine. Um, and none of these options uh, look at all promising for the government right now. It's it's really in a hole. What about the, the support that Johnson has in Parliament right now? Uh, I mean, he lost that vote the other day when a number of his own caucus members voted against uh, his proposal. Uh, not to suggest now he said he was going to fire them all. I don't think he wants to get down that road. He needs every vote he can count right now. But can he, can he count on his party voting as a block in, in situations like this? Well, no, he can't. And, and those uh, 21 uh, rebel Tories uh, who voted with the opposition have now had the party whip uh, removed from them, and they've been told they are not going to be able to stand as Tory candidates in the next election. So not only did he, he lose his uh, majority a couple of days back because a Tory MP defected to the Liberal Democrats, but then he um, decided to exclude... 21 further Tory MPs, reducing his majority yet more. Um, And these MPs included two former chancellors of the Exchequer, some really senior figures, and there's quite a lot of anger in the Conservative Party about what he's doing. He's pushing way to the right, uh, this kind of hardline English nationalist line, um, and... uh, He's moving against uh, the centrist, one-nation Toryism, which used to be the mainstay of the uh, Conservative Party. It's extraordinary. Uh, among those numbers, I guess known, uh, added to those numbers, is the fact that, as we found out uh, earlier this morning, uh, his brother resigned uh, today as well. Uh, I'm not sure when that's going to be effective, but he cited you know, differences, of course, between Boris Johnson and, and the policies and uh, what he considered to be the conflicting family views, too. So the numbers seem to be shrinking considerably here, and you just have to wonder if he's if he's got the power to do anything. But the other element, I wanted to, I'm glad you could join us today because there was a, I got a question after we had a conversation a few days ago uh, about mm-hmm. confidence or non-confidence votes, as the case might be, Brian. Uh, we know, of course, last year that, uh, that Theresa May went through a non-confidence vote from her own party. Uh, and I know that they said you can't do that again for a year, but there's a new leader. Does, it, does that one-year moratorium still hold? question. I I don't think it it does. Um, They would be able to call, um, members of his party would be able to call uh, a a um, no-confidence motion uh, against their leader. Um, But it's a long and convoluted process. Yeah, as Um, we saw last year. Yeah, you'd have to get 50 um, MPs uh, writing to this obscure uh, 1922 backbench committee uh, calling for a vote uh, and um, none of that would be possible um, before October the 31st. Um, and the vast majority of MPs are still behind uh, Boris Johnson and, and his attempts, no, no matter how cack-handed they are. 
So that that's not that's not in the cards anytime soon then. And and it but so. just to answer because there was an email we got after our last conversation uh, from one of my listeners and. I, I guess it's really premature to even consider something like this. I mean, there was a there was a body of work I think that that irked a number of MPs when they decided to do this with the former prime minister. Johnson's only been there a few weeks, and although, as you say, it, it, he may be ruffling a few feathers, uh, he there are still a number of supporters within the caucus. What about the Irish support, though? How solid is that at this stage? It's pretty solid. Uh, the the uh, ten members of the uh, Democratic Unionist Party uh, are, are sticking with the government uh, all along the line. Um, they're not particularly in favour of a general election because uh, they might uh, lose uh, two or three seats uh, in the election. Um, but um, they're, they're still uh, maintain, maintaining confidence uh, in Johnson for the time being. So he can count on those numbers as well. Dare he? He's 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 not lacking in any self confidence here, Brian. Does he try to move ahead with this legislation now and that figure? Okay, the worst is over, and I can uh, maybe you know with the fear of an election that that I can go through this, and maybe I'm going to get a little more support than I did last time. Well, he certainly wants that general election. Uh, he's pressing for it. He's angling for it. He probably was from from the outset. Um, because uh, he, he got elected as Tory leader and as prime minister by being uh, the, the purest of uh, the, the Brexiters, um, saying that, uh, you know, I'm the one uh, who's going to get a deal, and if not, we're going to go ahead with no deal. So appealing to uh, the, the uh, far-right irreconcilables uh, in the Tory party um, and in um, the... the uh, I mean, the problem is uh, if you campaign uh, with a fairly extreme position like that, once you get elected, you have to somehow uh, deliver that position. And he knows full well, I think, that um, uh, no deal would be disastrous for the country. So um, the notion that a general election might get him off the hook, might get him out of that commitment, I think has been... Uh, a part of the strategy at the back of his mind uh, all along. Um, but a lot of that depended on the opposition um, playing ball and, and uh, really um, launching a, a no-confidence motion uh, in the government, which they did not do for tactical reasons this week. And, and that's why he's in such a mess. Let's, let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn, if we could. Um, yep. Described by many people, Brian, as, as radical left, uh, we all know that, of course, in the past, uh, when the Labour Party formed the government under Tony Blair, he tried to move them a little more to the middle, at least as much as he tried to anyway. Uh, Corbyn is, is, is not Tony Blair. Uh, he's a different kind of politics, different kind of style altogether. Uh, how is he being received by the British public? Or do they look at him as, an, as a possible alternative as prime minister? No, they don't. Um, his uh, opinion poll ratings are um, historically low for uh, a leader of the opposition. Um, he's not re well respected in the country. He's not well respected uh, um, among his MPs. Uh, his only support really uh, is within the constituency parties. Um, if there was a, 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 a more popular uh, Labour leader, someone who was a little more Blairite. I'm talking about Blair before the Iraq War and whenever mm, yeah, yeah. Him. 
Um, if there was a, a, a galvanizing figure um, like um, the early Blair, then uh, I think uh, the opposition would be 20% ahead in the polls, uh, and we would not be in this problem um, that we have at the moment. Um, I mean, this is the most disastrous uh, government uh, we have had for decades, if ever. Um, and an opposition, an effective opposition, um, should be able just to, uh, you know, uh, charge through this, this open door. This is an open goal to, to mix metaphors. Um, but because of Corbyn, because of his unpopularity, the opposition cannot do that. And, and that is, is one of the tragedies, really. The uh, the pound took a, a, a pounding, excuse the the double match there, but uh, it's recovering today. But I'm wondering if that's really a reflection on the fact that uh, let's face it, Boris Johnson got his knuckles wrapped, and uh, the parliamentary system worked. By the way, I guess that's one of the the, the the headlines of this whole thing. I mean, the the process that was put in place all these hundreds of years ago uh, did uh, actually cut off a, a prime minister from potentially just running the show without the regard for par- parliament or a public view or anything else. Uh, I don't know what that's going to do historically. I don't know that it happens that often, but the markets seem to reflect a lot more confidence in the parliamentary system now that Johnson seems to have been chastised a little bit. Yes, I think so. I mean, the markets uh, really don't want uh, a, a general election, and they certainly uh, don't want uh, a no-deal Brexit. Um, so if there is any indication that uh, either of those uh, can be uh, at least postponed, then the markets are going to rally a little. But uh, there is so much uncertainty ahead so that I think the, the general trend is going to be downwards. How flexible is is? Boris Johnson of this stage. He's, as I say, I, he's a very proud man. He's a very confident, self-confident individual. Uh, and he was sticking to his guns. I mean, as, as you mentioned, he's been very adamant about the fact that, look, this is what I'm going to propose. This is what I proposed to, to, to get this leadership job, to become prime minister, and I'm not going to move on this. And we, we saw him channeling Churchill, of course, in, in the Commons the other day. Uh, you know, we will never surrender. Uh <laughs> Uh, not really the, uh, a political position that you can stand to when you're in the position he's in. As I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, Brian, I said Churchill also said, uh, those that don't change their minds change nothing. Uh, so I, I guess you can select your Churchill quotes to suit your political stand on issues like this. But uh, is, is he going to go down with this ship, or does he still think he can win this? Uh, he probably thinks that he can bluster his way through. Uh, you know, one of the problems is that um, he is, is facing uh, the House of Commons for the first time uh, as Prime Minister. He's having to stand up at the uh, dispatch box uh, and uh, answer questions. And his normal uh, shtick of kind of uh, shambolic, blustering, playing for laughs is not working in this new venue. Um, and I think he's a little bit lost. Um, by all accounts, his performance uh, yesterday and the day before in Parliament um, were pretty disastrous and uh, not at all convincing. So um, although he might think uh, that uh, his his act, his Boris act, because that's what it is, uh, will continue to be popular uh, with the public, um, I'm not sure that that is actually going to play out. 
We are watching, uh, because this, as I say, is a very fluid situation. It seems to almost change by the hour sometimes. Brian, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. You're very welcome. Take care. Brian Lewis, of course, from uh, Midville University, professor of history, uh, and a great student, of course, of British politics. And uh, this is history being made over in the U.K. right now with uh, some of the antics, I guess, of uh, Boris Johnson and the reaction from Parliament. And it does obviously have huge economic uh, impacts right across the world uh, with the markets, some of the potential trade deals, Canada involved in that as well. So everybody's watching with great interest. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.